I'm told this morning that our projector screens are not working, which will make things a little bit challenging for you, as I have a number of quotes I was going to share on the wall, but you're going to give your best attention this morning, on Easter morning, and it will not be difficult for us. Our scripture reading that we'll read in just a moment is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. But before we read, remember this. The events of the Passion Week, the things that have happened in Scripture prior to Easter morn. Jesus had told His disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And He added, He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. The disciples did not like it when Jesus talked like this. It was confusing to them. It was dark, it was solemn, and it made no sense for their understanding of who Jesus should be in their life. But they soon experienced that he was right. He knew exactly what would happen. He had been betrayed by Judas. He had been arrested. He had been rejected by the religious leaders, even rejected by the crowds that had in recent days praised him as a national hero on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. Everything Jesus had said had become true. And he would suffer the agony of crucifixion and death on a cross. Everything that he had predicted of himself, all that the Old Testament Scriptures had predicted about the Messiah, it was all coming true. The shadow was becoming substance. The promise was coming true. And now on Easter morn, that first Easter morn, it's early in the morning. It's still dark. And it's the third day. The third day he had referenced so many times, mysteriously about. And there is yet one more promise yet to come true. The biggest of them all. Give your attention to the Easter reading of John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, 
also went inside. He saw and believed, but they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that He had said these things to her. Let's pray that God would help us understand this supernatural miracle offered to us. Lord, by faith this morning, gathered here in this place, would You enable us, every one of us, to lean over, and look in to see the good news that is ours in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us that faith to believe. We pray in His name. Amen. Naturalism versus supernaturalism. This is not a collegiate lecture this morning. But in a world filled with students and former students, you have got to understand that that is the tension that this passage, what we believe by faith to be a historical account of reality, that is the tension that everyone should feel pressing on them when we consider the resurrection of Jesus. Naturalism versus supernaturalism. What does that mean? Naturalism means this. Do you believe that all things can only and can never do anything but conform to natural, known order and function? Meaning, everything has got to be verifiable by scientific test. Everything is natural and limited by natural causes, natural effects. That's naturalism. And that is what our world only believes in. Versus supernaturalism. 
Supernaturalism would believe that God, the creator of all things, can break the bounds of the ordinary that he created and do extraordinary, supernatural things if he so chooses to break his own rules. Like raise a body from the dead, or part a sea, or prolong a 24-hour day, or shorten a 24-hour day. The scriptures are filled, Old Testament and New Testament, with what are given as historical accounts of supernatural events. So I put that issue before every one of us this morning. What are you? Are you a naturalist? Are you a supernaturalist? Do you have a category for God being God and doing extraordinary things when He so chooses, when He says and determines that He's pleased to break the bounds of naturalism. When considering the resurrection of a dead body to life, that's the pressing question for every one of you. And the Christian believes. The Christian has to believe in supernaturalism. Can't explain away the event of the resurrection. We believe by faith. And so three simple points for us this Easter morn as we marvel over this truth of the resurrection. And the first is this. It's the truth of the resurrection. It's that the resurrection is real, y'all. What say you? What do you believe? Now, you've gathered for worship this morning. I presume you believe in the resurrection. But perhaps some of you maybe have tried to explain it away in a culture of disbelief. We are bombarded. We are surrounded in everything we see and read and hear explaining away the beautiful truth of the resurrection. So what say you? Tim Keller says this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that Jesus said. And if He didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what He said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus or His teaching but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's precisely right. If he rose from the dead, we give him our attention and our ear. If he didn't rise from the dead, he is no different than any man who lived before him or after him. But we live in a culture of unbelief. We live in a culture that says, no, all things have to be explained naturally. There is no supernaturalism. Even Christians within the broader Christian church, some have claimed that. You're familiar perhaps with the Jesus Seminar from the 1990s. Or even before that, higher critical Christian scholarship that would try to explain away the miracles. Try to explain away the supernatural. It was unbelief encapsulated within the church. And that may have affected some of you and some of your past. But this morning, we're reminded of what is clearly given to us as a historical account. Over and over again, multiple authors, multiple evidences, multiple witnesses testifying to the resurrection of the dead. Etta Lineman in the 1970s, was a budding Bible scholar who had been trained by Rudolf Bultmann. 
And she would become one of those higher Christian critics, historic critics that would try to explain away the Bible. And then as an adult, after teaching and training pastors to explain away supernaturalism, in her testimony, she shares that she finally heard a pastor preach the Bible as the Word of God. Though she had been around the Bible all of her life, she began to hear and reconsider. And she would hear these supernatural events of Scripture through new eyes. Holy Spirit awakened eyes. And she would change her perspective completely. She had gone from the professor in the seminary classroom persuading people to disbelieve in supernaturalism to now, as a Christian, an adult woman in Christ, her conclusion would be, burn my books. Which is literally what she said. Everything I had written, everything I taught, burn it all. Because I believe everything that I tried to disprove. If that could be true in her, could, could that be true of you? Could that be true of any of us? Could we have grown up in a culture that explained away but never really heard, never really considered the profound truth laid before us? Where were you when you first wrestled with the resurrection and whether or not it was possible for a supernatural event to occur. Where were you? What age were you where you wrestled with it and came to personal conclusion on whether or not the resurrection was true? Do you remember how old you were, where you were, when it was? Maybe it could be April the 17th, 2022, the first time we all met back together in the sanctuary in two years, by the way. This is the first time I preached to the whole church, unmasked, all together. It's good to see you, by the way. Where were you when you wrestled with that and whether or not it was true, whether or not it was possible? If you've not, everything before us this morning says, wrestle with it. Test the Scriptures. Search for the truth. Ask yourself, is it possible? Is it possible? Because person after person after person has done the same and said, Whew, it's true, it's real. So consider, where were you? What did you believe? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-8. through 8. Some of that evidence and testimony within the Scriptures. Listen to this. Is this given to you as a fairy tale resurrection or as historical truth? This is the Apostle Paul. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance... That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. A euphemism for death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. All of these people, most of these people, out of these hundreds, they're still living when he says this. They could say, no, 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 that's not how it played out. But this is bold testimony. Eyewitness account of a risen Savior who encounters his followers. 
who is now ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But Paul, even in the Scriptures, Mary Magdalene is struggling. She doesn't seem to be a quick believer. No, she doesn't. So we hear of Mary Magdalene, one of the first witnesses at the tomb. And she shows up and she's crying. She's disbelieving. She has no categories for what has just happened. And in fact, she even seems to be a little irritable, which maybe we can be when we're crying and emotional, right? In verses 2 and verse 11, I think Mary Magdalene models for us what it is to be dazed and confused by the events of life. Everything that's happened in these days prior to the resurrection, you think of what these believers have lived through, where it seems like everything has crashed and burned. Everything seems to have gone wrong. And now she's come to the tomb bringing spices, going to do final treatment to a body and bid everything well, and the body's not there. Somebody took, somebody took our friend out of his tomb. And her eyes are filled with tears. And all of a sudden, she hears her name. Woman, why are you crying? What do you mean, why am I crying? They've taken my Lord. Did you take him? Are you the gardener? Did you take him? She's, she's a little snappy. And so we can be a little snappy. We can be a little dazed and confused. And yet the Lord can be right there in our life, right there in our presence. But we're irritated, we're frustrated. We just don't see it. We don't have categories to understand. And you can feel very much alone and abandoned, which is surely what Mary felt. But she wasn't alone. He was right there. And so we can sympathize with Mary Magdalene in this. Sometimes our emotions get the best of us. And a very present Lord can feel very absent in a moment. And so Mary reminds us of that this morning. Clarence Hall says this, Easter teaches us that you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. You can nail truth to a cross, bind it with linen cloth, and shut it up in a tomb with a stone. But the truth will rise. The truth will rise. The truth always prevails. And so it is with Jesus. So we should have great confidence. However dazed and confused you may be in the season of life you're in, there is resurrection life, resurrection hope. Clear your eyes. Calm your emotions. Be reminded that Jesus is there. The very present help in times of trouble. Secondly, the grace of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection the grace of the resurrection. Consider the grace that's offered to us. And that is that we are family. God has made us to be brothers to Himself in the resurrection of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Our salvation, our redemption, is membership in the family of God. The biblical story of paradise lost becoming paradise regained is the story of God's grace bringing us from alienation from Him to membership in His family. Do you hear that? The whole story of resurrection means those who were alienated, enemies of God, can be made sons and daughters of the living God. 
brothers and sisters to each other, partakers of one family called the church. That's the grace of the resurrection. We're not in this alone. The church is in this together. And it's a beautiful truth. In verse 17 of John chapter 20, you remember what Jesus said to Mary when he reveals himself? Of the disciples, of those who had ran back to try to figure out and scratch their heads what's going on, he says, go and tell my brothers about what you have seen. Go and tell my brothers. See, that's family language. Now think about who these brothers are. These are the ones who just days earlier had fallen asleep on him in Gethsemane. These are the ones who disbelieved. These are the ones who doubted. And the first thing he refers to them as is my brothers. Not as go tell those knuckleheads. Go tell those guys who got it all wrong that I'm back. Go tell my brothers. That's family language. That's the first language he uses of those who failed him so much. And then in the same part, second part of verse 17, he says, of God. He says, my father and your father. My God and your God. That is healing language in the heat of the moment where everything seems to be at stake. My Father, my brothers, my God, your God. That's what the resurrection has done. It's offered grace for sinners. Sinners who have failed God, sinners who have failed Jesus, He calls us brothers because we're a part of the family of God. And then thirdly, and lastly, the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. And here it is. In the terms of the text, that we need not cry. The hope of the resurrection is that we need not cry. John MacArthur says this the resurrection is the ground of our assurance, it is the basis for all Christian hope, and it is the source of power in our daily lives. Here and now. It gives us courage in the midst of persecution. Comfort in the midst of trials. And hope in the midst of this world's darkness. There is a hope linked to the resurrection that says you need not cry because the hope offered to you as a believer is greater than any despair, any news, any diagnosis that you and I can be given in this life. Now, that's a bold statement. But consider what's happening in our passage here. Mary seems to have every reason in the world to cry. Her Lord has been taken away, stolen from a tomb. The one who had cleansed her of what the Scriptures say were seven evil spirits. When the Lord purges you of seven evil spirits and frees you from all the bondage and misery... You have a very close connection to that person. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your Deliverer. So there's a close-knit bond between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And she's in despair. But the risen Jesus says to her, Mary, why are you crying? I'm here. The resurrection is real. The resurrection brings 
grace. The resurrection brings ultimate hope. So, so why are you crying again, Mary? I'm here. Everything you're crying about is, has been undone. And this morning, I want to apply that to the church family because you're living through God knows what. Disappointment, loss, diagnosis, hurt, sadness, fear, being overwhelmed by circumstances. And to that, the scriptures would say, you have ultimate hope that cannot be shaken because you have a Lord who has overcome your one true enemy, even death itself, taking the sting away from death so that it hurts no more. It causes fear no more in the heart of the one who knows the one true God. I know that is overwhelming to consider because it overwhelms me to consider. But we're told we need not cry. So Mary, why are you crying? Or maybe we could say, Mary, why are you not sleeping? Or Mary, why are you tense and anxious and worked up? Can you believe the resurrection and the one who is very present for your help in times of sorrow? I know that sounds simple, but it's what the text offers us. It's a risen Jesus who has overcome your greatest fears and your greatest woes. Some of you may have seen, I'm going to close with this quote. It was in the New York Times this week, an article, and I have a few copies of it if anybody wants it, but it was written on April 10th, and its title is, How a Cancer Diagnosis Makes Jesus' Death and Resurrection Mean More. That's in the New York Times. Let me say that again. In the New York Times, how a cancer diagnosis makes Jesus' death and resurrection mean more. And it's a religious author, an opinion writer, who interviews Tim Keller, who I already quoted. You know Tim Keller, PCA minister in New York, who two years ago was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer doing well to be living two years later. Stage four pancreatic cancer. And the article is beautiful and wonderful because you see the writer is marveling over the degree of hope that this pastor has, even though he's living through the last days, months, years of his life. But listen to what Tim Keller says. This captures so much the resurrection hope that you and I should have and that Easter should cement for us. Listen to this. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately, God is going to put everything right. Suffering is ultimately going to go away. Evil is ultimately going to go away. Death is ultimately going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Cancer is going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope that the world has ever known. And that is so true. So Mary, why are you crying? 
Mary, why can you not sleep at night? Do you have the greatest hope that the world has ever been offered, that the world has ever known? Easter, the supernatural event of resurrection, it presses on us that question. What is your greatest hope? Is your greatest hope that you're never going to have a diagnosis? Is your greatest hope that you're never going to have a car accident? There is no hope in that. It's coming for every one of us. Our greatest hope is in a risen Lord. A Lord who says He loves His church, even though they're very unlovely. And He's done everything, everything, to win those people to Himself. Let's pray that we would have the bold confidence that is ours in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us, even now as we close in song, to lean over and look into the tomb? To lean over and look in to see, is a supernatural God, is it, is it possible, is it true? Because Lord, that resurrection, we see that it really does redefine everything. And so Lord, this morning, may our hope be in Christ and in Christ alone. Otherwise, we'd be found empty-handed in the end. So do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.